Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, you are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Amy Bird and Carl Truman. And uh, today, we are having a special conversation with some friends of mine. Um, actually, we attend the same church together, and we want to talk about a topic that is, I think, for some people, awkward to talk about, but it, but it, it need not be. And it can be something that not only does the church need to talk about, but can talk about with happiness and with joy. Our guests today are Tim and John L. Frost. Tim is an associate pastor at the church where I serve as the lead pastor. Tim is, after having served for a number of years as the youth pastor at that church, now coordinates all of our staff and does an excellent job with that. John L. is his wonderful and long-suffering wife, and uh, they are both uh, here to talk about life and uh, ministry to and with a child with Down syndrome. What is it like to be a family with a child with Down syndrome? How can the church uh, minister to families who are walking through life joyfully, but at sometimes with those special challenges that come along with a child with Down syndrome? I will tell you that Tim and John L., they have a, a daughter named Addie. How old is Addie now? Five. And then their beloved son, Declan, who is what? He's got to be uh, two and a half. And Declan, who is one of my favorite people at church, and uh, he never talks back to me, never gives me any attitude uh, like his dad does. But um, Declan, their precious son, uh, has Down syndrome. And Tim, I will always remember uh, the Sunday morning. You called me early on a Sunday morning after uh, Declan had been born and uh, the doctor had told you all that there, that, that there were signs of, of Down syndrome. And I'll never forget because you called me not, not long before the, uh, the, the worship service started to tell me that. And I think I would just want to begin, Janelle and Tim, by asking you, when you received that news, because you didn't have any warning, oftentimes they're able to kind of tell through sonograms, that kind of thing. You didn't realize that Declan had Down syndrome until after he was born. What is that like? What was that like for you? When, when you received the news that your newborn son had Down syndrome? How did you process that? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a great question because it is, um, that's, that's an experience that John L and I will, will talk about a lot of just kind of reprocessing the emotions there. You know, when, when we had our daughter, our, you know, our first child, we, we, we were thrilled. We you know, did all of the you know, Instagram and Facebook posts and, and mm-hmm. texted all of our friends and family and, and had this great joy associated with her birth. And, when, when Declan was born, pretty quickly, within, I don't know, a half hour or so after him being born, the nurses and, and, the, and the pediatrician who was on call came in and kind of sat us down and asked us a question and said, have you ever heard of trisomy 21, which I hadn't. I, I didn't know that that was the, the more you know, technical term for Down syndrome. And they said, well, your son has uh, a lot of the uh, markers for Down syndrome. And at that moment, I think for John L and I, it just went to, to white noise. Mm-hmm. And they gave us a little bit of information. They kind of left us to process it. And that white noise kind of, I think, hung around for, for a while. And I, I don't mean just like an hour or two, but I mean days. Right. Um, and I, to preface it, the pregnancy with Declan was like any other pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So there was no 
off feelings or odd or concerns or worries. So we had expected an Addie in boy form. Yeah. And that news, um, I likened it to um, someone who hears medical news uh, that is pretty significant and scary. When I've heard those folks talk about um, cancer, that's the word that keeps circling and there's nothing else. And it's kind of nebulous. Mm. That's where I was just down syndrome, down syndrome. I don't know what this means. It was, it was, there was a, um, and it wasn't any fault of the the nurses or doctor, but there's a dehumanizing sense to it where all you think about is a diagnosis and not the person. person. And so we're here tripped up over a diagnosis and all of the what ifs and all of the fears associated with that. And here our, our hours old son is there and we're not delighting in him or celebrating him. We're, we're grieving. And so there's this, we, we, were, we were trying to find the word last night as we were talking through this. I think the word, John L., you came up was conflicted, right? There's this conflicted emotion of we're supposed to be joyful over the health of our newborn, but there's this grief associated with this is not how we wanted it or expected it. And that was kind of my next question is that just speculating here, I would think that when a mom and dad find themselves in this position, that there is an automatic challenge now because they feel guilty because they're feeling something that they don't want to feel. And then maybe a fear of, and I'm speculating here, so tell me if I'm way off, but perhaps a fear of, am I going to be able to connect with this child of mine? Or is this going to be an impediment? Am I off base or does that sound familiar at all? There's, it's familiar. There's a level of false guilt that you carry thinking, um, maybe especially as mom, I did something wrong. What about um, my activities or what I ate or what I was doing contributed? Um, So that's the false guilt because there was nothing Mm. wrong that I did. And the shame of feeling feeling that tension, feeling the conflict of I want to delight and I can't and the shame of that because I'm mom and I'm supposed to love and protect and cherish and all of these emotions caught up with all of the logic Mm. um, gets entangled. Yeah. Yeah. I remember wrestling just, um, both personally and as a pastor is how do I present this news to our congregation in a way that is honest, but still trusting in God and, and and giving glory to him in the midst of my grief. And so, you know, with our daughter, we, we sent off a birth announcement to, you know, to our church pretty quickly. I think within a day or so here, it took us about five or six days, I think, to kind of think through how we wanted to let people know about him, you know, and then, you know, I I grieved over that because I felt guilty. I felt, I felt this sense of shame of why am I not wanting people to know about my son? And I didn't have the words and I wasn't at a place emotionally where I could even get above sort of the water to think through how to communicate. Well, I was, I was grieving yeah. and, um, and because we were, after all, he's born with dignity. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. he has, right. has great dignity. Yes. Right. Before I turn this over to, to Carl and Amy, I, I just, one kind of question connected with that. Then what do you say? What, do, what are the best things to say? to a couple who have 
just welcomed a child with a kind of a handicap like Down syndrome or, or Down syndrome. What are the things you do say and what are the things you don't say? <laughs> uh, you've got you've got to give the one example of what you don't say and you know the, and you know the one i'm talking about i will keep it very generic just because lots of people listen to this yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were told very early on and we found this to be true we, we have friends who have had a son born with a congenital heart, heart defect and now has had a heart transplant and they, they told us beware of the at least but when people come in and they want to say hey at least mm-hmm. you don't have it as bad as this you know, they're trying to, they're trying to compare it to something to make you feel better. And we got a lot of those where they just were really unhelpful. They're trying to say, Hey, at least it's not like this. And we're saying, yeah, but it is this. Yeah. So let us, let us sit in this because this is hard enough. And so, you know, I think, I think one thing to not do is to try to minimize the complexity or the weight of the grief or the hardship by taking people out of it to compare it to somebody else's situation Mm-hmm. But to let people sit in theirs and meet them in that grief. And oftentimes the best things people said to us is, I don't know what to say to you, but we love you guys. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. cultural too. You know, nobody wants to sit in pain and grief. We want to uplift and pull out of. Mm-hmm. So very culturally, you are blending in with what you know how to do. And prior to Declan, I'm sure that we are both mm-hmm. guilty doing very similar things of, of wanting to alleviate the pain that you see on a friend's face when really what they need is to be joined. You know, one of the most helpful things that several people did say to us, it was, it was people who came in, especially in those early days and weeks, who without doing, saying anything about Down syndrome, they came in and celebrated our son. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they just came in and they said, what a beautiful boy, what a wonderful son you have. And that was so good for my heart to hear because I was having a hard time saying that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for people to come in and not see the diagnosis, but to see the person was very helpful for us to reconnect or to connect with our son. Mm -hmm. And um, so those types of things of people just saying, we're thrilled for you guys. I know this is hard, but what a wonderful son you guys have. So those those things were, I think, most helpful in those early days. And I can say this, um, we, uh, three weeks into his life, we found out he had a, a heart defect and was going to have to have heart surgery before he was six months old. And I me- oh, wow. remember sitting in the, in the hospital with the cardiologist in, in, in the PICU and him and sitting us down and explaining the, the, this heart defect and him looking at my wife and saying, this is not your fault. That, that was huge for her because you heard her say earlier the guilt she wrestled right. with. And yes. You have a medical professional who we found out later is a wonderful believer who goes to our, our mother church in Charlottesville. And, and he just was really shepherding in that moment to say, you know what? You did nothing wrong here. We don't even know why, why Down syndrome happens. There's no uh, cause for that abnormality with the, the chromosome and the heart defect. It's just one of those things that kind of comes along with Down syndrome often. And it's not your fault. And that's our story. Yeah. There are probably others who have known other men and women with Down syndrome that they already knew it wasn't their fault, um, that they are already very wise in this world of Down syndrome, but that was not our case. So we had to be told things multiple times Mm -hmm. (laughs) to actually hear it and let it sink in. Yeah. Yeah. How has this shaped your view of divine sovereignty? 
<laughs> that's a it's a great question you want to answer that <laughs> thanks carl for that <laughs> well like i said we believe that declan is created with dignity and have learned that over these past two and a half years more and more as we see the wonder that he is and the dynamics that he has brought to our home, mm-hmm. each individually with Tim, with myself, with Addie, and then on a broader scope to our extended families, um, our parents and brothers and sisters-in-laws and cousins. God created Declan exactly as he had planned for him to be in our family. It's so and, t- I, go ahead. and I wrestled with that. Yeah. In the beginning, his sovereignty didn't make sense to me at all. And how I justified that was, okay, so we're in a sinful world and we are fallen and broken and Down syndrome is part of the fall. Which I had spoken that to others whom had this very confused look on their face. (laughs) Like, why would you say that? (laughs) But I was trying to make sense of it. I, I was lost in my own understanding of theology and God's goodness um, and that he doesn't make things subpar. Yeah. I think, I think I was angry at first and just knowing that God was in control and he could have given us a child without a disability. And yet he chose great providence to give us Declan with his difficulties, his disabilities, but on the flip side, his wonderful abilities. Um, And so two and a half years later, looking back on it, I would not choose to have it any other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in a conversation with somebody and it just kind of came up of, would you, if you could, would you, if you could heal, you know, miraculously heal somebody of, of down syndrome, would you do that with Declan? And, and I don't know if I would, I don't, I don't think I would. I, I love every aspect about him mm-hmm. and, and down syndrome is a part of who he is. And he wouldn't be him anymore. No, he wouldn't be. Away. And yeah. his, his wonderful personality. Mm-hmm. Now I know that I say this and, and there'll be people who'll be listening to this. who have children with other disabilities that might not have characteristics that are as, as delightful as what Declan has with some, you know, Declan is hard too. Um, so I don't want to make light of, Hey, all disability is really fun and great. Um, or more severe medical conditions. Right. Yes. So, one thing it has done, it has trusted us. It has made us to sit, to say, sit down and say, God, we trust you. And we would never have written our story this way. And yet this is what you've given us. Now we trust you that you're enough in this mm-hmm. moment. And we've had to say that a lot because we've, in the two and a half years of his life, we have spent a considerable amount of time in great medical difficulty with him. Mm-hmm. And so we've had to entrust ourselves and say, okay, I don't know why you're doing this, but you're good. We know that. Show us how you're good. Yeah. And bring you into a night that I had with Declan. Is that appropriate? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever um, uh, we were struggling, Declan doesn't sleep well, has never slept well. So I was in his room, very dark in the middle of the night, probably at two or three in the morning, and had been up with him already maybe 20 to 25 times, um, readjusting him, repositioning blankets, pillows, body, whatever it was. That was the point that I felt the deepest um, anger and hopelessness and resignment that I had ever felt throughout the process of living alongside Declan. And 
what I was saying to God was, leave me alone. Just leave me alone. Because it felt so oppressive. And anybody knows lack of sleep can... Oh, it's terrible. ...mind go to really hard, difficult, torturous places. Mm -hmm. And so that was where we were, but Mm -hmm. nightly, every single night. And so that was the place that I was, this dark hole, wanting to just disappear from God's sight. And explaining that to Tim, it was scary, fearful for me. And through that explanation in that dark night, I told Tim at the very same time I had this imagery of myself as a toddler standing in the corner, throwing a fit, kicking the wall, but still kind of looking over your shoulder to make sure your parent hasn't left. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember she, she telling me this kind of wrestling with those thoughts. And she said, I want God to leave me alone. I want to run away from God. And then she stopped and she said, but where would I go? Mm -hmm. Where do I go? Where do I go? And so there's that, the, the deep comfort of knowing we are ultimately his and resting in him even in those moments where you're thinking, I don't know if I even like God right now, mm-hmm. but I know he's good and I'm going to rest on that. And then Todd, we've talked about this where, you know, the hospital room or those, those moments of, of deep grief are not the time we have to learn theology. Right. Mm-hmm. Fall back on your theology and what you put in those moments, because those are not the moments I want to read the Bible. Those are not the moments I want to sing a hymn. Those are the moments I want to yell and scream. And we fall back on the truth of, of what the psalmists do say and what the hymns do say. Um, and then the, the word stored in our hearts is, is, is reminders of those good truths. Yeah, that's why you preach. You preach your people really faithful every Lord's Day. You get them into the word. You equip them with great doctrine so that when they are in the hospital room, mm-hmm. you don't have to do all those things. You can let them along with a brother or sister along with them, but you let them wrestle then through that in, in that room. You don't have to do all of your theodicy right. in the hospital room. Yeah. yeah. Right. When I was in college, I worked two summers in a daycare, and there was a six-year-old there who had Down syndrome, and I learned so much. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting because he was by far the most challenging kid, <laughs> but he was also by far the most joyful, joy-producing in others mm-hmm. <laughs> child, and and I delighted in him. Yeah. And and even though he you know could be a real challenge, and one thing I really noticed um, through him and and some others with Downs that I've been around is that they really see the world through different eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when uh, I think it was maybe the first or second week after he was born, we were at our kind of the early checkup with our pediatrician, and he was he was really helpful with us. He said, you know, every child you have, no matter if they're typically developing or they have a, a disability. You never know it's going to happen. There's all sorts of things that could happen to your kids. He said, with, with Down syndrome, you kind of have a little bit of an idea of what to expect, both on the hard side and, and the positive side. And he said, on the positive side, uh, Declan, his EQ, his, you know, his emotional intelligence is going to be really high. That typically uh, or often accompanies Down syndrome for whatever reason. And, and, and we've noticed that with Declan. He, hmm. uh, as a two and a half year old boy, if somebody's crying, particularly our five year old daughter, <laughs> he will stop what he's playing with and scoot across the floor. He doesn't walk yet. He'll scoot across the floor and he will go give her a hug and a kiss. And it's just, it's really sweet to see that his tender compassion he has specifically for his sister, but for really anybody. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah. 
I remember um, getting to baptize Declan, which is really, I mean, I've, I've said this, and, and, and it's true, really a great, great privilege to get to, to baptize him. But one of the things that, that came to mind as I held him there in front of the congregation, in terms of, you know, some kind of going back to what, you know, Carl's question, God's sovereignty and all of this, is is the, the kindness of God in giving uh, our church this, this gift of this little one mm-hmm. who is unique in so many ways, but also entrusting him to two people, you two, um, who I knew would, would raise him in the care and the, the nurture of the Lord. And, and you've been doing that, and it's been a, a joy to watch him develop so wonderfully and to know it's because he's, he's well loved. You all have, have risen to the challenge in remarkable ways there. And, and I remember, Tim, very soon after he was born, you just sharing with me out of the, the grief and out of the shock of just your own, what, what if I'm, I'm not able to, to bond? What, what if? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, seeing within very short order, you bonding extremely tightly with him has been yeah. a, a, a wonderful thing to witness. And I just say that to say, for, for any other parents who receive this news, um, it, it's normal to worry about whether or not you're going to bond. I would imagine that's normal. Um, but you will. You will. And, and watching the way you two, you know, he's, he's been a, a real gift to the church. And that brings me to this next point. I mean, by God's grace, the church that, that we're a part of has, has gotten a good reputation for caring well with, caring well for families with, these kinds of challenges, children with special needs. What have you all experienced in our church that's been especially helpful? And then, and then from there, we'll talk a little bit about you know Tim as the guy who's kind of the coordinator for all the ministries in the church. What are some things that we're doing that you would commend? And I want to hear your perspective as well, John L. That you would commend to other churches to take up as as best practices in terms of caring for families. Food. <laughs> yeah, food. Yeah, food. Really? Was that what you expected early, early on? Well, I wondered if that was I always on feel the list. Inadequate when I show up with just food. Oh, it's so helpful. Like, so helpful. We, you know, on the receiving care side from the church, especially the first year of his life, you know, we spent nine weeks in the hospital. Um, and so thinking through just what that looked like for us, you know, we, we lived an hour away in Charlottesville family helped pay for a hotel for us for most of that time, which is incredible. Mm. Um, We had people in the church make meals for us. And then one of the nurses who worked in the hospital in Charlottesville, who lived in Harrisonburg, would bring those meals over to us every other day and coordinate the meals for us. It was incredible. And so we had meals provided for us. We had families come over uh, to help take our daughter out and just give her a fun time. So she's in the hospital all day. People would visit us. And then even non-hospital stays, We've had so many people uh, reach out to help. That early on, when he had a lot of uh, medical complications after his heart surgery, a few nurses in the church formed a, a nurse team that would come over and help relieve us, and they could take care of Declan, knowing he had very specific medical needs that they could take care of that a normal babysitter couldn't. Break. It was mm-hmm. phenomenal. We've had lots of those types of things. Lots of people, which makes um, made me realize one. I have to be vulnerable and let people in. That's hard. Do all of and this John, stuff. And, and, you know, Amy just said that's hard. And John L, that knowing you that you're an introvert, that's hard, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I, you know, the energy that you reserve um, for family for a five year old, 
and for paying attention to every medical aspect that Declan had um, and drug regimens and um, uh, equipment. That mm-hmm. went Feeding tube, all that good yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, it was a lot. So being vulnerable, feeling exposed and not always together and clean. And you know, I think that there's, Something that we all say, yes, we want to invite people over, even if our house is a mess or whatever, um, but do we do that? And can we allow people to step in and know that they are not judging, they're trying to help? And yeah. Tim had to help me understand that a lot. They, they are here to, to come alongside and support and love on us. So, and food was a, was an easy way for people to do that, that we didn't have to think. And a lot of the questions that we got were, what do you need? Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a difficult question because we didn't know what we needed. Um, There were times where I'd say, I don't have enough energy to help you know how to help me. (laughs) Just do something that you think would be helpful. And I'm sure we'll appreciate it. (laughs) <laughs> Even if people didn't cook food, they gave us gift cards to yeah. restaurants. Yeah, money mm-hmm. always is great. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. You bet. Oh, absolutely. And and particularly because because of the expenses yeah. you all had in traveling back yeah. and forth to UVA Medical Center, you know, there was always need for some yeah, extra cash was, for food, for staying overnight in a hotel. Was an insane yeah. period of time. I will say this as a side note back to kind of the sovereignty of God question, Carl. We had before mm-hmm. before Declan was born, we had started a building a house here and we sold our townhouse and had to move into an apartment uh, while she was pregnant, but the apartment had severe mold issues. And so we ended up having to move in with the family from our church. And we told them, Hey, we're probably gonna need to move in for a couple of months. Well, we ended up living with that family for a year due to the delays on our house and Declan being born. So while we're going through the heart surgery and everything, we're living in somebody else's home. Wow. And so that family has become unbelievably close with us. And talk about living out in the open for everybody to see. We were with another family in the midst of our deepest, darkest moments mm-hmm. in our life. Wow. They saw them that, and they're now unbelievably close to us. And, um, I love them. Yeah. And so that has been just a, one of the side blessings of, I never would have orchestrated things like that. And yet I'm so thankful mm-hmm. for God or orchestrated. And, all and I can just say as an observer, as a pastor in that church, as an observer, what that did to my heart, to my wife as well, as we watched that family serve as we watched you all allow yourselves to be served in that way. I can't tell you how many conversations Karen and I had and, and how moving that was to see the church do that. And, and again, to watch you all allow people to serve you. Mm-hmm. When, yes. when you have no other option, it was like, okay, yeah, we're stripped of everything. Yes, please help us. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was, we needed that, and God knew that, and he brought us to that point, mm-hmm. and we're thankful. And we also had some um, dynamics with friendships that some, and it, it's all different levels of friendships. Um, people stepped in, our good friends um, with the son that got the heart transplant used this imagery for me. She said, imagine that you're on an island, and um, you will have friends that kind of go on the tour boat. They come in, they kind of visit, they look around, and then they go out. Um, you have friends that will be more of the more of the long term vacationers. They'll come around, they'll help with whatever needs you have that are most immediate, and then they'll go back to where they're from. And she said, and then you'll have the friends that zip line in onto your island. 
and they will stay there for as long as you need them to be, and they will be your main support. And we experienced that um, over and over again. And to learn that friendships also evolve and change as you're walking this path, and they're learning and evolving too. So it it is a community, it is our church, and we know that Declan, he's going to contribute. He's going, we want him to be a citizen in our church that loves everyone and contributes in the way that he's gifted and that he's built. So we've, we've learned a lot through our church and church family. That's so much the way I felt when you're saying um, how Declan contributes as a citizen in the church, just in my daycare experience. I mean, I would leave there feeling blessed mm-hmm. by that boy so much because I got to see the world through his eyes there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm, Mm-hmm. I'm partially sad, but not sad to say that during the sermons on Sunday mornings, Declan is probably entertaining the entire row behind him. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and I was and I was going to say because because we 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 welcome children into our worship services. One of the things I love is that everybody knows Declan. I mean, he's there. He's there in our services. And I got a text from a parishioner that said, um, "So I heard um, up front." Declan go, wow, at the end of the prayer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, that's nice, so cool. Nice, yeah. nice, nice. Um, yeah, you, you want to talk about... Well, just, just a couple of things. A couple of things in terms of best practices. Here are some things that would be great for churches to do for families who, who have children with special needs. So, I, I, yeah, kind of prefacing that, I'd say churches are oftentimes the scariest place for families with special needs to go because there is an expectation of quiet behavior often in church. And often when you have a child with special needs, they're loud and then they might make really kind of awkward noises. And so I know yeah. a lot of families stay away just because they don't want to draw attention to the, to their situation. Mm-hmm. And so I would say the more the leadership can help dispel the feeling or the myth of you have to be perfect, but actually use the words like we want you here and we're so thrilled. And, you know, sometimes you're going to hear noises and that's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, if possible, you know, one of the things our church has is is a quiet room or a soundproof room that has a window into the sanctuary where people can go if they have a, a child um, and just needs a little extra room or is loud. Sometimes I'll take Declan in there uh, if he's squawking during the service, but we can still be a part of the service there. So I say part of it just starts with the attitude of wanting people and families there and then actually loving them when they're there and entering into the mess and being comfortable with the, the difficulties. And I think one of the most helpful things is when people ask questions that dignify your child and dignify your struggle rather than assuming, but they just say, tell me what it's like. How can we be helpful? What would it look like to help your child attend church and be in the service? For, for years now, there's been a ministry at our church called Through the Roof, which comes from the gospel account of, of the friends bringing the paralytic to Jesus through the roof. And so part of what, um, what they have done has evolved over the years, but there are, there are two women who oversee it right now, volunteers who are, are both trained occupational therapists, but they oh, nice. have a real heart for the disability community. Mm-hmm. And um, three or four times a year, they do respite days where for three hours on a Saturday morning, uh, children with disabilities and their siblings come to the church and each one gets a, 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 a teen or an adult buddy. And they have activities and Bible lessons and crafts and games all geared towards both uh, the, the child with a disability and then they're typically uh, developing siblings. So it esteems both of the kids, giving the parents a break. And, and as a side note there, one of the things I think that's important too is 
oftentimes the attention goes to the child with the disability to also esteem the, the children who are, 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 don't have the disability. There, there's a term called glass children, meaning that you look right through them mm-hmm. because you're looking at the other sibling all the time. It's been a very, very helpful uh, discussion. Uh, thanks very much for coming on, Tim and Janelle, and sharing some very personal and intimate anecdotes and, and feelings. Uh, I hope that our listeners uh, come away, those who have children with special needs, perhaps encouraged, and those who don't, more wise and more sensitive towards those in the church who do. If you go to our website, uh, www.mortificationofspin.org, we actually have uh, a couple of books to give away by Stephanie Huback, and the title is Same Lake, Different Boat, Coming Alongside People Touched by Disability. So if you visit our website, you get a chance to enter to win a copy of that. And please remember while you're there that we are a viewer-supported podcast, and if you feel led to make a donation, uh, please do so. In the meantime, it remains just to thank uh, Tim and Janelle Frost once again for coming on to the program. I must express my sympathy for Tim as he has to work for, for Todd Pruitt, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. It will come to the end, uh, brother, at some point. Uh, I just don't know when. Yeah, hang in there. We're praying. We're praying for you. We're praying for you. And as for the rest of you, we look forward to being with you again next Wednesday. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... At least from what I was hearing, all the dust that was being kicked up was over a young man, same-sex attracted, identifies as queer. So everyone was concerned about what queer theory in the New Jerusalem will look like. I'm surprised nobody raised any eyebrow over this talk. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. And I was wondering, like, the challenge of facilitating, like, Todd, because does he answer your emails? And you want to do a separate podcast for that? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, 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 yeah, stay on for an additional recording on on that one. It's May- the burden I bear. <laughs> yeah.